Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And as we approach the end of the year, we spend a lot of time looking backwards. And maybe this year, more than ever, we're spending some time looking forwards. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at um, two articles that were written in, that appeared in Forbes, written by a guy called Shep Hyken, who is a customer service expert. And he he wrote an article um, about his 10 business predictions for 2021. And he basically looks at research and looks at what's happened and then starts to anticipate what we might have in store for the new year. Have you have you read this article, Tracy? And, and what what did it how how did it appear to you? What what did it make you think about? Um, I thought it was a good article, um, and I was quite intrigued to see that he'd started off this list with the same as he's had for the last five years. Just really interesting. So he's obviously got a bit of a theme with his predictions. Now I've got to say, at the top of my list for 2021 was, I'm hoping there's some light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something bright and cheerful happening yeah. next year, um, so, something different to what we've had. Um, but he starts off his list with, um, like I say, the thing that's been at the top of the list for the last five years which is customers continue to get smarter about customer service and experience. Now, I don't know about you, Heather, but my my experience of customer service this year has been really mixed. And in a lot of cases where it's been really poor, it's been blamed on the pandemic. But I'm not so sure it is just to do with the pandemic. I think some companies have potentially been hiding behind the pandemic as an excuse. Mm. And I know a lot of companies have struggled, but some companies have done tremendously well under the circumstances with their customer experience and their customer service. But there are a few really bad experiences out there. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, we've talked about a couple a couple of my experiences this year where things have just gone to the point where uh, there was a there was an episode with some flowers that I was having delivered and it was literally I, I don't know why this is so complicated I ordered some flowers you didn't deliver them what's the <laughs> what's the problem so yeah. I, yes I think they we've talked about you, it didn't they that's the thing they they what they argued with you yeah they are yes yeah yeah absolutely so I think customers might continue to get smarter but, but he also talks about our expectations. Customers are becoming impatient. They want what they want and they want it now. And of course, one of the things that has happened through the pandemic is that businesses have had to become more efficient and more accommodating. Otherwise, their businesses were going to completely disappear. So they had to desperately hold on to what business they could. And our expectation levels have risen accordingly. And maybe you know in 2021 they will be um you know customers will continue with that level of expectation even though people are totally exhausted and no longer able to meet that demand i think you're right i I don't think you can go backwards from that if you've Mm. stepped up to the mark this year 
you're going to be just expected to continue to improve from there, surely. Yeah. Um, because the next point that he makes is that convenience is no longer an option. And we've seen the way that some brilliant businesses have adapted their services. You know, so restaurants are, are becoming takeaways. The local coffee shop has become a, a beer delivery service as well. Mm. There's some amazing out-of-the-box ideas from some of these companies. But that goes in hand hand in hand with this idea that, for example, delivery before was a nice option. Not a lot of businesses offered it. Now a lot more businesses are offering it. How are you going to unoffer that service when yeah. you want people to come back and sit in your restaurant rather than you deliver your restaurant food to them at home? So, you know, he's saying that now it's standard. You need to offer convenience and that can include delivery. And that's not just in in food outlets. You, I, I, I totally agree. You know, the whole phoning a an, an Indian takeaway, for example, and saying, "Do you deliver?" That might have been a legitimate question once upon a time. Now the expectation would be that they do deliver. But also in Oswestry, I know you know we've got a bookshop they deliver. We've got um, uh, a shop that sells alternative therapies and um, you, you know various products that you wouldn't ordinarily expect to have delivered like you know echinacea and lavender oil and you know certain environmentally friendly products you might normally pick those up yeah um but the you know the expectation now is well surely you deliver ah wow exactly but interestingly enough the research says that um people are prepared to pay for that convenience mm-hmm. so that they, they will pay for more convenience which includes delivery so it, you know yeah. it's not all bad you're not just having to provide um more service at a lower margin actually if you provide that service your customers are prepared to pay for it yeah and i think the bigger boys have been doing that for a long time you know the supermarkets um even you know the likes of iceland where you could do your shopping in store and then have it delivered so I think, you know, there's a lot of that going on. But it's the fact that these independents are now having to having to do that in order to um, retain their share of the business that's already being being and has been lost well, to the big you, online. If you look at some of the discount supermarkets, they're, they're now exploring delivery services, which were, um, you know, more for the Tesco Sainsbury's of this world. You've got Aldi yeah. looking at, at deliveries and, and things now, haven't you? So yeah. I think it's pulling everybody into that delivery frame of mind and looking at ways that they can can actually make their products more available to the customers. Mm. But that's yeah. going to continue. According to this article, you, there's no going back from this one either. Yeah. And yeah. also the next point, there's no going back from virtual and remote working. According to this article, and I think, you know, I I tend to agree with him, that the companies have had to think outside of the box, do things that they never thought were possible, and they're shutting down their offices. So, And we've talked about that quite a lot, haven't we? And and this hybrid workplace, we've, we've touched on that, that, okay, you might not have everybody working from home or you might not have everybody working in the office, but you might have that flexibility where people spend a couple of days in the office couple of days working from home a day working on a client's site or whatever it might be not possible for retailers obviously and people in the hospitality industry who need to be present 
who are customer facing but um a lot of the backroom stuff is 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 being done elsewhere now the next three intrigued me because sandwiched in the middle of these is empathy the word for 2021 will be empathy so that's point number six but in point number five he says that companies will find more ways to automate and digitize and in chat um, point number seven he says that chatbots will do more to communicate with customers so that's a really fine balance with having empathy for your customers as well so yeah. there's that sense that you've got to think about the digital experience but yeah. but with empathy as well so that the empathy of human to human interaction but that's got to work with automation and chatbots that's quite an interesting dichotomy for me yeah and i don't know about you but so chatbots are you know they they've once upon a time they didn't exist then gradually they sort of crept in it but some of them are a bit like, you know, you, have you got a question? You know, can we help? Have you got a question? And basically, it's just trawling through a load of frequently asked questions. And then you've got the ones that have actually got real people. It, so you have a chat facility. Now, if it's just a chat bot where it's trawling the frequently asked questions, I'm not interested. I'll, I'll chat with a real person through through an interface such as a website. But I don't want to be doing it with a bot. I'd rather get on the phone and have the conversation, even if that means having to wait yeah. to speak to the human. So it talks in, in point seven of this article about chatbots being the starting point for escalation to a human, which seems reasonable to me. Uh, yeah. I agree with you, as long as you do get to interact with a human, or unless chatbots get a whole lot better than the ones I've come across so far. Yeah. Well, isn't this just like the modern day equivalent of, you know, press one for accounts, press one, oh, press two for customer <laughs> service, press three for deliveries or whatever. And, and weren't you so pleased if somebody told you the shortcut and just said, oh, just press naught and you'll get stuck yeah. the person. <laughs> do you know what I do in that situation? Uh, if I don't know which one, I press sales. Because you can guarantee they'll be the ones that are answered soonest. And they go, oh, well, I'm not sure if I'm through the, the right department. I want to speak to somebody in customer service. Girl, I've got a complaint. And the, the salesperson goes, oh, not another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so predictable. And then yeah. point eight, it talks about digital getting personal. So I suppose that's, you know, where, where the customer wants to feel connected. Mm, uh, even mm. at the digital level level so it's connected to to the points before isn't it really yeah absolutely and he does then go on to talk a little bit more about what we've just been um, discussing that companies will there is a concern that companies will over automate processes and over digitize processes and that runs the risk of alienating the customers who going back to that word empathy they want that interaction. They want the human to human element. Um, and there'll be sometimes when there are some people, you know, there are some people I know who don't want to speak to a human. They want to do it all via email or via a chat bot, you know, that, whereas for me, no, I want the human. And so it's, it's been able to offer both options, I think, is the thing. Yeah. And his last point, I think, is is very interesting. He talks about companies fixing problems before customers even know that they have it. 
Mm. And, and that, you know, you never actually have to ring to complain that something's not working because they already know. So from your car noticing it needs maintenance to your internet being down or a company knowing that your supplies are running low and so automatically sending to restock. Yeah, I mean, there's been, a, I, I know that my first encounter with that, which I thought was kind of a bit alien, was back in the day when I was employed, we were um, we were having a, a new server. And one of the, the things about the, that was that if there was a problem with the server, it could be anticipated ahead of the server failure. And I was like, what? This is, <laughs> this is madness. You know, but yeah, what, once you've, once your server's fallen over, it's a major problem. So yeah, that ant anticipation is something that a lot of us come to expect. And the car thing, yeah, service due in however many miles or check your brake discs or whatever. It's become part of our lives, hasn't it? I suppose. Yeah. So I think all in all, it's a really good article. And you pointed it out to me. So thank you for that, Heather. Um, I, I think um, all of the points seem to tie in together. It makes a, a reasonable story. So it doesn't seem to have just plucked different ideas from different places. There seems to be a progression with his thinking as to you know, what, what's going to happen for businesses over the next 12 months. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM, and I picked up a report from Monday this week, um, and it's about iPhone users and their problems with their battery. Now, I particularly noticed this report because I have a problem with my battery. Now, according to this report um, in Mac Rumors, Users of older iPhones are reporting battery problems with the new iOS update 14.2. And people are saying it's going down to 20% after about half an hour, or it's getting warm while you're using it or charging it twice a day. It's freezing when you're using Touch ID. And I've got to say, I've experienced all of those things. My phone's getting really hot as I use it. It's taking at least two charges a day and for some it's really slow responding on some things so um, I was really intrigued to read what they're thinking about this now according to this article the issue appears to be software related as many users have said that the battery life sticks at a high percentage before falling quickly and that a sudden gain in battery life can be seen after they restart their device so if you're suffering from the same problem as I am, restart, switch it off and on again. It's the typical IT solution, isn't it? Now, apparently Apple haven't released any official statement on this issue, but I'd say the people in the Apple developer forums and Reddit and Mac rumors, they probably know what they're talking about. Yeah, I imagine they do. But how does a software update affect the battery life? That's sort of like, that's a software affecting hardware. So I, I'm guessing one of the things they're saying is that the software is not necessarily telling you exactly what the situation is with the hardware. Ah, uh, okay. I don't know so, how that explains the phone getting hot, but mine is doing that. Okay, but not all the time, but occasionally getting hot. So maybe it's overworking on certain things. Um, so it'd be really interesting to know if any updates come that improve that situation. Um, they have released an upgrade recently to address 
bugs with the text messaging and an issue with screen responsiveness. But I've always had this feeling that it's in the interests of the phone companies for your older phones to naturally die, isn't it? That this inbuilt obsolescence is, seems to be the case with a lot of um, equipment these days. Um, I did hear a story this week. Um, I was in the car and there was some news on the radio and they were talking about as part of the environmental um, aspirations of, of, the, of the planet, basically, um, building in this sort of um, building in longer um, usage for devices will, of course, send less things ultimately to landfill, even though they get recycled. So there's some there's some thinking that that will actually not be allowed. This sort of built in obsolescence will be something that will be forbidden. Oh, I do hope uh, which so. Would be great. Yeah. yeah, which would be great. Certainly with our dishwasher, which I think has decided that it is now the time has come 10 years time to pack up that's not a bad service so I, I my washing machines seem to know just when we've gone out of um the 12 month period and then dial uh -uh. that's happened for the last three years it's really annoying now <laughs> yeah that's not good that's um, not good i picked up a little story that um, it's really hard to find positive news around at the moment um uh, and so i i happened to cross a story that makes absolute sense because I don't know about you but during lockdown suddenly everybody seemed to have a dog and it wasn't just my imagination um apparently there has been a big craze that um pet uh, an article in Reuters said pet craze may pump up puppy-sized financial bubble um not just because people are getting uh, buying more dogs and then buying um pet products but also people who breed uh puppies that there is of course there are all sorts of things we need to be aware of in terms of puppy farms etc however if you want a pedigree you could um you could almost be paying well you could be paying three thousand pounds um for an english bulldog wow which is 50 percent more than the average brit's monthly take-home pay and if you amortize that over the life expectancy of the dog it's about 250 pound a year for a dog but it costs a lot more to to operate so <laughs> to operate it operate yeah, like <laughs> yeah like feed and then pay somebody to walk it i guess <laughs> i just you, thought that was an interest you have pets don't you heather you don't operate your cats do you <laughs> no no i don't they operate us <laughs> <laughs> well maybe it's different for dogs then <laughs> i think it i think it is anyway um the likes of pets at home and you know um some of the high street pet stores um are doing really well but so are um uh breeders but with the caveat beware puppy farms and smuggling of, of dogs okay right i'm going back to an old favorite ikea we seem to talk about ikea every few weeks or so don't we but this week uh, they announced that they've taken the emotional decision to end a seven decade tradition and they are discontinuing their catalogue seven decades yeah so it was first 
um, printed in 1951. It featured the MK wing chair on the cover, and they printed 285,000 copies that were distributed in southern Sweden. Mm. And the last one from this year was 40 million copies. <gasps> one four? No, four zero. Four zero. Wow, from 285,000. That's amazing. So it must have been a really difficult decision, but they say it's because they're pushing IKEA to become more digital and that people are getting more used to their online presence and using mm. um, the website a lot more. And apparently in the 12 months that ended August, just gone, online sales of IKEA jumped up by 45%. Mm. I've got to say, I reckon a good half of that was down to my household. <laughs> 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 um, but apparently the number of copies of um, of the catalogue that have been taken have gone down. But of course they would because people haven't been going to the shops. Yeah. But yeah. I, I can see they must have thought really hard about that decision uh, because it's almost, it's a bit like the Argos catalogue, isn't it? It's sort of an iconic thing that you have and you sit with mm. a cup of coffee and a biscuit and have a browse through. So um, I, I'd be really interested to see if they decide to bring it back at any point or if that's it, if that's gone. Apparently they're working on a smaller publication that focuses on inspiration for home furnishings. So it's rather than a full list of all the products, I'm guessing just like um, images of rooms and things, but the sort of thing right. that you could potentially get on Pinterest or Instagram really. So. Well, I suppose when you go to IKEA, they've got lots of rooms set up, haven't they? Yeah. So that you go, oh, that's a nice sofa, oh, and it goes really well with that sideboard. And what about that rug and that lampshade? And then before you know it, so they're having the ideas for you, I guess. Maybe it's yeah. going to be more of that. Yeah. So we'll wait and see. But they're, they're obviously putting a lot of thought into how they deliver their services because we've talked about the concept stores that they've got and having a high street presence instead of the out-of-town presence. So um, it'd be interesting to see which of these ideas stick going forward. In our review section this week, uh, we're not reviewing one book. We're not reviewing two books. We're reviewing a list of 10 books. An article in Forbes came up with 10 mind-opening business books for 2020. So these are books that have been published during this year that have or have the ability to open our minds. And um, they're, they're kind of of a type, don't you think, Tracy? Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by the... Um by the assumption that our minds are closed to these ideas and hence need opening. Uh -huh. um, it, the, the suggestion being that um, the dear reader of this article would has perhaps not considered this. But I, I read something interesting in the article, which actually I, I rather agreed with, which said, he says too many books, but I think uh, quite a few books, I wouldn't say too many, but quite a few books, are scarcely disguised marketing materials for the author's services. Yeah. And that, that is quite true. Some of the stuff you look mm. at, it's like, and, and we, we've sometimes said, haven't we, that actually you could have said this in one chapter. Yeah. 
but yeah. it's been padded out a little bit. So um, he says that they pick up on a facet of what's involved in running a company and then trumpet that as the solution. I've got to say, I don't think that's a new thing. Many gurus have been made from the solution and that's become their career, hasn't it? So they, yeah. they've written an essay, maybe, and then they've turned that into a book and then they've turned it into a, a tour and then they've turned it into their whole thing and they become this business guru. So yeah. I, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. Um, but the other thing that he mentions is that a lot of the books are, are, are talking about obsolete management practices and that if only firms followed these practices then they'd succeed and he's sort of at a point again there but I don't think it's necessarily because these practices are obsolete in my opinion there isn't a one-size-fits-all so whether it's about a brand new practice or an old practice or whatever it is you can't just read the manual and make it work for you that, no. that would be where I'd say the shortcoming is. So what he says these books are are the real thing. Now, did you think? Did you agree? Are these books the real thing, Heather? Well, I don't. I mean, obviously, I haven't read the books. I've just read, you know, the synopsis. I don't, well, I don't know. They focus. Most of them focus on on big stuff. So Amazon, for example, Netflix, Tesla. Organisations that we've talked about, higher, I think that's how you say it, H-A-I-E-R, which is the massive electronics, the company that has um, a massive share of the global electronics market. There's a book about Silicon Valley, uh, Agile, we've talked about Agile, you know, so really big subjects. And that's why I think that, that the list is, it's books of a type. And I think you and I could probably, if we put our minds to it, certainly looking at the books that we've reviewed this year, come up with another list of a type that perhaps might be more relevant to smaller businesses. I think this is yeah. big stuff. I think when they're talking about mind opening, it depends what you want your mind opening to, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he's talking here about the common theme being the ability to thrive in a world of overwhelming change. Now, I do wonder, is that different for the Teslas of this world to the, the small craft business in North Wales? I don't know. There are clearly some learnings you can have both ways. But as it, by putting all of these 10 books together, it does sort of dismiss any other experience of business, I think. Yeah, yes. I mean, of course, if you if you invested the time in reading any of these books, I'm sure there would be some bits that would make you think. And regardless of the size of your business, it might send your thought process down a particular route. So then it might be that it served its purpose. But I don't think that you can map a lot of this stuff onto um, anything other than, you know, mega businesses. That's yeah. just my view. And also, the, these books in 10 years' time will be out of date as well. So mm. nothing stays the same, doesn't it? So it talks about out-of-date management theory. Well, it might not even be 10 years that these become out of date. It might be 10 months at the rate we're going. It, yeah. it might be yeah. 10 weeks that things are moving so quickly. 
But if you're genuinely interested in how big companies have got to where they are, I think there's some real good material in here. I used to love um, watching and reading the books by Sir John Harvey Jones. And it, I look into the detail of businesses that were failing and you sort of get a sense of how that, and they were all fairly big companies, how they could turn them around. So this might appeal to people in the same sort of way as understanding the nitty gritty of mm. something that is bigger than they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a few, I highlighted a few bits that sort of caught my eye, but the one bit, and this is something that we've mentioned a million times on on, um, on the show, is in talking about Netflix. So we all know how massive Netflix is. Uh, they begin with talent. This is the most critical dot for the foundation of the whole Netflix story. A fast and innovative workplace is made up of what they call stunning colleagues, highly talented people, from diverse backgrounds and perspectives who are exceptionally creative and they achieve significant amount significant amounts of important work and collaborate effectively now that that does translate yes. higher for attitude train for skill you know that's key absolutely also i i, I do um, do him a disservice there is a book on here which is about a smaller firm um and he he says this is from giants to tiny i wouldn't say it's necessarily tiny it's not a micro business but it's a 30 person industrial firm so you know it is different to the teslas and the the hires of this world um and they're talking here about um the bottom-up approach with autonomy and influence from the bottom so uh, that's a, a really interesting read that's probably the only book on here that i would potentially consider getting my hands on at the moment it's called uh, 500% how two pioneers transform productivity the first truly self-leading organization uh, I sometimes think that a self-leading organization is a bit of a unicorn a lot of people mm. think that they want it or think that they know how to do it but it's actually quite elusive and it's a bit yeah. maybe mythical so I'd be really interested to see how they made it work but what he does talk about in again in the synopsis is that it's actually that's actually about helping employees to understand where their contribution fits into the organization financially so that they can then make an informed choice to contribute to that yeah. I think uh, that's important in whatever business you're in to yeah. engage your employees to understand where they fit and why they're important yeah yeah can i just make one last comment one of the right at the end of the article he talks about looking at the common patterns that exist within each of these books and within each of all these organizations and there was a sentence that reminded me of what we were talking about last week which was um you know not about selling you know we were talking about um the jelly <laughs> effect yeah yeah so it's not about selling it's about buying and um the sentence that i highlighted instead of focusing on selling products these firms are obsessed with adding value to the customer and when we think about what we've just been talking about with those 10 predictions for 2021 that has to that it's no coincidence that that exists here yeah. i think yeah he, he finishes off by saying it's um implementing these principles leads to distinctive corporate cultures and different cultures and contexts 
so you know that that's what's common to all of them really and I, I think um you know understanding patterns of management and leadership that's what these books are all about but in the modern context so if you're interested in these articles and finding out about these books we'll put a link for it on our website which is the business.community and the blog that Heather writes and the podcast that I edit down is all available on that website. Our profile this week is of a gentleman called Peter Moore. Now, he's suddenly a very well-known name in the town of Wrexham. And we're not talking about Peter Moore, the serial killer from North Wales. That's the mistake Heather made, I think, with her first search for this gentleman. And perhaps you wondered why I suggested we profile Peter Moore initially. I did have to double check. <laughs> yes. So we're talking about Peter Moore, the British American businessman. And the reason why he's become a household name in Wrexham, is he's been linked to the new owners of Wrexham Football Club, which Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. And apparently it, it's it's been said that he's helping them, um, advising, consulting them with their um, new purchase. And the guy's got form because he used to be the CEO of Liverpool Football Club. And He's got quite a prestigious background in business. So he's been Senior Vice President of Global Sports Marketing at Reebok, President of Sega, is it Sega? Sega, I think, as in the Sega Mega Drive. Ah, Sega Mega, yeah, of course. And Corporate Vice President of Microsoft's Interactive Entertainment Business Division, in which he's overseen Xbox an Xbox 360 games console. He was the head of electronic arts at EA Sports Game Division and the chief operating officer of electronic arts. So he's, he's got quite a bit of a businessy background, but as a Liverpool fan and the mother of a family of Wrexham fans, it's all about football at the moment. So he became... Um, the CEO of Liverpool Football Club in 2017. He left just this summer and in November it was announced he'd be involved with the new owners. So there we have it. Had you heard of this gentleman before I mentioned his name, Heather, and before you found out he wasn't a serial killer? No, I was relieved he wasn't a serial killer. Um, I hadn't heard of him before. But what I am fascinated by, and, and I'm not I'm not a football fan at all. I know football's big in your house. It completely passes me by. Um, however, I'm interested to know, how do you go from being so heavily involved in, yes, large organisations, but predominantly about video games, etc., to then spend three years at Liverpool, at Liverpool FC, and now and then go to Wrexham. He, he made a massive shift um, from from it, it seems like a total redirection of his career. So can you tell me why and how that happened and why it's legitimate? I, want of I, a better word. I understand why he went to Liverpool. I don't actually understand 
by football. Maybe he was just looking to take a backseat from his his prestigious business executive career, um, which, which would appear to be the case. But according to a video that I watched um, called Voices of Success, gosh, we've, we've name-checked Forbes a lot this week. <laughs> I don't think we've used Forbes quite as much as we have done this week mm. ever before. But in Forbes, they've got um, a, a series of videos called Voices of Success. And it's about three minutes long, this video with Peter Moore. And he talks about other things, uh, particularly about how we... Um, how he likes to manage. We can come on to that afterwards. But his dad was a passionate Liverpool Football Club supporter. Right. So okay. um, he was born in Liverpool and he was inspired to return to Liverpool to get involved in Liverpool FC. I don't know exactly who approached who, but I know why he accepted. He's right. from Liverpool, okay. his dad was a big fan. And then he, you know, he he was presumably invited to get involved, and he said yes because um, his father was a passionate Liverpool fan. Now the link with Wrexham, well, Liverpool and Wrexham aren't too far apart for a start, and um, Peter Moore is based in California, so presumably he might have come across um, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney in the past. I don't know. But there is another North Wales connection here. He used to be a PE teacher at a school in Slangothlan. Okay. Wow. That's, again, that's a shift from PE teacher to computer games, video gaming, etc. I mean, and, and I guess it doesn't matter, you know, if you've got a skill set, you've got that skill set and it can be applied to lots of different business sectors I guess I just think it's a really interesting CV yeah well I was also interested to see that he's got a degree from Keele University now I'd just like to say I, I've got a master's degree from Keele University darling oh. um, but actually <laughs> then he, he went on to get his master's degree from uh, California State University in Long Beach so he's he's trumped me there hasn't he <laughs> you got diverted <laughs> mid-route I'm sure um, but I, I want to come back to that video uh, Voices of Success it's well worth um, a watch it, like I said it's only three minutes out of your, your time and when you actually get to hear people talking about themselves you do get a sense of the person he comes across really well in this short video but he talks about how he embraces creative destruction and he's a big fan of Schumpeter's work, as I'm sure you'll know, Heather. He oh, yeah, me and Schumpeter, yeah. <laughs> and and, and there's, he talks about the moment you become complacent and somebody comes along and will take your place in the market. We, we've talked about these sorts of ideas with disruptors. We talked about it with um, the, the banking sector, didn't we? We were talking about um, disruption of financial services. So he says that, the most important lesson he's learned, business lesson he's learned, is not to be afraid of the future, not to be afraid of disruption and not to be afraid of change. And so in order to not become complacent, he embraces this idea that you have to be destructive yourself and obviously creatively destructive so that your business doesn't fail and somebody comes along and you know disrupts it for you. You actually 
go about the business of reinventing yourself. Well, yeah, 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 I can see that. I can I see feel that. we're going to have to look into Schumpeter's work in a future show. We are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's not a name I'm familiar with, but then that might be because it's a whole it's a whole part of life that I'm I'm I haven't needed to know about. I have no idea. But what I did find interesting about Mr. Moore is that, and I imagine if you're um, if you're the CEO of Liverpool Football Club, you're probably earning a reasonable whack as you would be if you were involved with with Electronic Arts, Microsoft, etc. But he and his wife, um, well, he created the Peter Moore Foundation while he was in Liverpool and supported causes on social in isolation, food poverty, cancer research, Alderhey Hospital and the new Clatterbridge Cancer Centre, which is in Liverpool, which is world class. Um, so, again, a classic example of, um, you know, it's, I think it's quite nice to see people who are successful who then do some philanthropic work and use their money to good. So um, he also, with his wife, they um, were named honorary life presidents of fans supporting food banks, which is an organization that collects food for those in need at football matches and at various local events. So I thought that was, I thought that was really nice to see that. Um, but, Surely it's just a matter of time before we're bumping into him in the pub with Ryan Reynolds and um, Rob, how do you say his name, McElhenney? McElhenney, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we welcome Peter Moore, the businessman, not the serial killer, to Wrexham and uh, hope that he brings in and great success to Wrexham Football Club. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.